Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Friday, April 17th. We begin with our weekly chat with Mayor Nahed Nenshi. The mayor speaks to the recent increase of COVID-19 cases in our city and gives us the latest update on the feasibility of the Calgary Stampede going ahead this year. Next, we catch up with Olympian and doctor-in-training Haley Wickenheiser. We get the details on an equipment drive, a PPE drive, taking place this weekend, aiming to put much-needed supplies in the hands of our frontline healthcare workers. For young people and adults suffering from grief, the coronavirus pandemic can make those feelings much worse. So where can you reach out for help? We learn about the resources available from the Children's Grief Centre. And finally, what is the World Health Organization and why do we trust them? We check in with a Washington Post reporter who's done a deep dive into the WHO. During this difficult time, it's important to hear from our leaders. Joining us for our weekly chat is Mayor Nahed Nenshi. Good morning, Mr. Mayor. Good morning. Well, let's start with the numbers. It's difficult to see continued cases of COVID popping up in our city. We hear from Dr. Dina Hinshaw that we should expect higher numbers due to increased testing, but it's a tough pill to swallow, seeing as it's been about five weeks now with this new normal that we've been living in. So what's your message to Calgarians? You know, that's exactly right. Uh, We are not at the peak of this yet. Uh, We will see more cases. We will see more serious cases. And unfortunately, we likely will see more deaths. And so it's really important that through all of this, we continue the great discipline that we've been showing in the social distancing. I know it's tough, and I know people are starting to get a bit of cabin fever. And I I feel like people might also be forgetting why we're doing this just a little bit. And it's important for us to remember this. You know, I read a really harrowing article uh, in the New York Times by the columnist Nicholas Kristof last weekend, uh, where he was able to spend 48 hours inside two of the hospitals in New York that are really at the epicenter of all of this. And it was pretty shocking. You know, they're losing, they were losing 800 people a day. And when you saw what was going on in the hospital, the thing that really got me was when a senior doctor had sent a note to junior doctors and saying, you know, I know this is really hard, but there's two things you have to do. Number one is you have to hold somebody's hand when they pass because there's no one else there to do it and they have to know they're not alone. And number two is when somebody passes, even though you gotta get to the next patient, tell everyone around you to be quiet for five seconds and say the person's name. Wow. And I thought, wow, all they can do in a that place that developed and that wealthy, the only dignity they can afford to somebody is five seconds. And then they gotta go to the next patient. Scary and situation. That just reminded me of how serious this is. And yes, we need to plan for what comes next. We need to plan uh, for how to get the economy back on the ground. But ultimately, we need to remember it's that serious. And as the weather gets nicer, as we get more cabin fever, it is important for us to remember why we're doing this. Mayor, can I ask you, you know, we've heard so many stories from around the world about long-term care centers, the old folks' homes, and that's where we're seeing the majority of deaths across the country. H- how do they work here in Calgary? Is Are they municipally run? Are they provincially? How do they work? No, uh, nothing to do with the city, uh, but what I do know a little bit about it, uh, so some of them are publicly run, um, and some of them are run by nonprofits, and some of them are run by private sector companies. All of them are mandated and regulated uh, by AHS. But let me get political for a moment here. One of the things that I think this crisis has really shown us is who the most important people in the economy are. And they're not the people who get paid the most, 
and they're not the people that we sort of lionize as the great people in the economy. They're the people who really work on the front lines. And I've got to say, long-term care workers are among the lowest-paid people in our economy, and yet we ask them to do some of the most difficult jobs. And, you know, the, we had, it took a while to come up with this rule that you could only work at one long-term care center, and I was very curious about that. Like, that seems very logical. It should have been done right away. The reason for it is because so many of these folks don't get benefits, so they don't have full-time work. So they have to work at two or three or four long-term care centers so they can cobble together enough income to pay their families. Coming out of this, Let's treat the long-term care center workers better. We have about 30 seconds, but I have to get this one in, uh, Mayor, and we want to let you get back to your day. Stampede, I know you've had the question a lot. Uh, Is Stampede going to be scrubbed, or is there a possibility it could be pushed deeper into the summer? I'll give you the short answer, which (laughs) is that the Stampede Board has been thinking hard on this. They're meeting next week. The city has been thinking hard about whether we need to extend the ban after June 30th on events. Uh, that'll be an evidence-based decision, again, probably in the next week. I will tell you, as a member of the Stampede Board, that I can't imagine being able to move it to a different time of year in the same format, because it's kind of a circuit. There's a circuit for the rodeo. There's a circuit even for the midway rides. And the first two weeks of July are kind of the Stampede's time on that circuit. So if it were to move to a different part of the year, it would look very, very different. So it's likely that we'll hear a a result of some decision coming up very soon. Thank you so much for joining us, Mayor. Always appreciate chatting with you. Thank you all. Clean hands, clear heads, open hearts. It's in our hands uh, how this thing goes, in every one of our hands. And so we just got to stay disciplined. Be safe. Be safe. That's Mayor Mayor Nahad Menchie. You too. Coming up on 750 on your Friday morning, and there's a drive underway across Canada to collect PPE, personal protective equipment for frontline workers. To give us the details, we're joined by the person who spearheaded this initiative. Olympian and doctor in training, Haley Wickenheiser. Hi, Haley. Hi, Sue. How hey, are you guys? Good. Thank you for joining <laughs> us. This is this is huge, and boy, it's uh, turned into a monster compared to what you originally thought this was going to be. <laughs> yeah, it definitely has. Um, you know, we, I just threw out a, a tweet a couple weeks ago, just asking for uh, forty thousand ish items for a few groups that I knew needed it, and then uh, when you have someone like Ryan Reynolds with fifty million followers, <laughs> amplify it. <laughs> They kind of took on a life of its own, but it's been amazing. We've been able to partner with uh, Conquer COVID-19, a team of just grassroots, amazing people, about 100 folks that are just working literally 20 hours a day right now to to pull this off. And we've partnered uh, with groups uh, helping Alberta out in Calgary and a, a group out in Vancouver and Victoria as well to, to have drives this Saturday. So it's, uh, it's been awesome so far. What are we looking for exactly, Haley? What do you want to see in the hands of these frontline workers? Well, you know, I think a lot of people are like, well, I don't have PPE, like who has PPE at home? <laughs> mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, the PPE is a new uh, word in our vocabulary after this uh, after this uh, pandemic. But, you know, things like, yes, gowns, uh, gloves, whether sterile surgical gloves or non-sterile gloves, um, gowns, chemo gowns, but also uh, face masks, uh, things like sanitizer wipes iPads, um, even diapers, uh, formula, hygiene products, things like this that we can get to uh, women's shelters. And then things like um, face shield, surgical masks. There's a lot of people out there that are, that are making them. Um, and right now, what we're trying to do is just bridge a gap uh, until the federal and provincial governments get enough supplies into the hands of people that need it. And one of the things I think that's kind of misunderstood in Alberta is 
you know, we, the government shipped a lot of product to Ontario, but there are still small community clinics and long-term care homes and places like this that don't have enough stuff and are being forgotten. And uh, that is really one of the big concerns for uh, helping Alberta out, out in Calgary and in Alberta right now is to get the hands, uh, get into the hands of those people. So what's happening Saturday? We have a big kind of rally and, and collection. Uh, you, will you be in town or you just got your people who are doing this one for you? <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, I would love to be, but I I can't fly um, right now. Um, so I'm in Toronto, and uh, the uh, the drive will be happening between nine and five p.m. at um, Pro Store Pro Star Cleaning and Restoration, um, which is at number seventeen. 2916 Fifth Avenue Northeast. So the best thing to do would be probably to remember Pro Star Cleaning and Restoration, or to go to ConquerCovid19.ca and it has all the details on there of. Basically, what you do is you'll drive up in your car, um, you'll open your trunk, people will come up to your trunk in a gown or in a gloves and a mask, they will grab the items and you just carry on. So it's a very safe thing. We did it in Toronto last weekend. Uh, everyone's at a distance and people will be well protected. So uh, it has to be new items, not used items, um, <laughs> and preferably not expired items as well. Can people donate cash and help you out that way too? Yeah, so if people want to help out, I know it's tough times for a lot of folks, so uh, we certainly, uh, you know, appreciate anything. But there is a donate button on the website for cash. And if you want to buy the most boring T-shirt in the world, you can go on <laughs> and, <talk with laughs> and uh, you can buy our boring T-shirt uh, as well, which uh, all of the proceeds from that are going towards the um, uh, purchase of PPE. And one of the things we are able to do is work with a major supplier uh, here in Ontario who's able to buy bulk items. And that's how we're able to get it in just as fast or faster than the government right now. Good stuff. Uh, we really appreciate your time, Haley, and all you're doing when it comes to this effort. Okay, thanks, you guys. Thanks for the time. Be safe, Haley. Go doctor or thanks. something. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully soon. Thank okay, you. Good. <laughs> that is a Haley Wickenheiser, Olympian, obviously, and doctor in training. You can find out more about everything taking place this Saturday, again, from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. at ProStar Cleaning and Restoration at conquercovid19.ca. Well, many people suffering from grief prior to the pandemic have been feeling even more isolated with social distancing. There is help available so people don't need to feel so alone. With some help ideas, we're joined by Nadine Garipi-Fisk, Director of the Children's Grief Centre. Hi, Nadine. Hello, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. You know, normally you'd be hearing from kids suffering from grief, but it sounds like their parents are the ones really reaching out for help right now. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Right, it's so overwhelming a situation, and I think the the kids are probably just trying to figure things out. To be to be honest, I think the the beginning of it for some can be a little fun. They get to be at home and mm-hmm. and spend more time with their parents and do things differently. Um, but for the parents, are um, this can be really overwhelming. Um, this not knowing, this feeling disconnected from everything um, and having to handle a whole lot of information and um, trying to figure things out for themselves, for their family, it can be a whole lot. Nadine, can we put our finger on what's triggering people the most right now within this situation? I I would say the isolation is probably the worst. Um, People who are grieving already feel isolated. They feel different. They feel like they have to... um, 
figure out the world again and figure out who they are. And and the world is just so different and the world doesn't even know what it is right now. Mm-hmm. And trying to figure out who you are in that can be really difficult. And for some, it's really, uh, it can be really triggering the fact that, you know, a dad who might think, if my wife was here, um, she'd be able to do this school at home thing and, and I'd be able to work and we would support each other and we'd figure this out. We'd team tag on this. Um, or the mom who had a child who died of a virus some time ago and now is worried that our other children are going to catch um, this virus and they're going to be ill and die too. So you're concerned really, I guess, you know, obviously about families who are already under a lot of stress and feeling isolated in their grief. So what do you have available for them now to help people out? Yeah, well, I, you know, we really want people to know that we're still here. We're still offering the same services, just in a different way. The usual um, links, um, the points of connection, some of them have fallen apart with schools being out and the healthcare being taxed in the way that it is. So we continue to offer support to our families in the same um, to the same degree, except that now it's on the phone and on a secure video platform. Um, and we also, um, in... Um, uh, in in March, sorry, we launched our text and chat. Mm. So for those who feel like they can't connect to, it's it's just too much to even think about connecting and, and engaging in counseling right now. Um, they can just uh, go to our website, childrensgriefcenter.ca, or text 587-355-2210, and there'll be someone at the other end who will be able to support them just in that moment and as they're feeling overwhelmed or feeling like they need to connect to someone. Nadine, I heard a very interesting, uh, you know, statement that we should not consider it perhaps social distancing, but physical distancing. How important is it to keep socially connected uh, from the eyes of your organization and to, to still be in touch with family and friends, be it by phone or video chat? It is so important, Andrew. And this is something that we don't realize on a day-to-day basis how much we're connecting with others because it's just part of our routines. It's part of what we do. And now we're having to be proactive and in reaching out to people and it's uh it's huge and for children for younger children who don't have phones who don't have the same ways to connect we need to to create that for them and maybe we need to also set that in some form of routine you know every day around this time or this time we'll reach out to those people and that will make them feel part of the world and that will lessen that um sense of isolation and and maybe a little laughter and connection to mm-hmm. the, the person that they usually are out there in the world. You know, you're, you're a children's grief center particularly. Are you hearing from kids who are, are grieving that they didn't get to finish their school year, whether they were grade 12s and as we just heard, no, no graduation ceremony or even younger kids who, you know, they didn't get to say goodbye to their, their friends and their teachers? We certainly are. As I said before, I think some children are are okay. Um, that's not a stress for them. They're able to do school at home. They're connecting in different ways with their uh, with their classmates and their friends. But for most kids, they're really missing that. They're they're a little anxious about doing the work. It's very different. Um, doing the work um, uh, at home and feeling disconnected from your friends. You also figure out, imagine some teens who their whole world is being around their friends yeah. and um, and that's how they define themselves. And right now they don't have that. So And they're wanting a little bit of space, which they usually get, and they don't get it because <laughs> they're stuck in the house with everybody else. So everybody is trying to make... Um, space for themselves trying to connect with who they are um in the in a world that's just so different right now 
Could it also be a, a case that, you know, parents normally would have a, uh, you know, if, a, if their child's having a tough time, it wouldn't so much be a tough time for the parents at that point. But now we're all in the same boat, so that's why we could use the extra help. The parents might not be as solid and as consistent as they normally would be. I think so. You know, I, I think one thing that um, that we're hearing ab- about a whole lot uh, is, is how routines have changed, how life has changed too. And, and it's okay that we're not all doing you know, math at nine on a Monday and science at twelve thirty. Um, but I think not having that routine, not uh, not ha- having some of that um, normalcy uh, to our days, can also create anxiety. And 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 it's difficult for everyone to recreate that. Uh, the parents are feeling that anxiety. The parents are are having to be all of those people when uh, themselves they're trying to figure things out. And, and that can be quite taxing on families. So the um, it's it's never too little to reach out is, is always what I think. If we're feeling anxious, if we're feeling stressed, if we're feeling like we could do with a little bit of help or even um, having a sounding board, uh, it's worth reaching out to, to someone who can help us with that. Mm-hmm. Why, don't suffer through it alone because I think everybody is in you know that boat in some way, shape or form right now. So Nadine, let's go through the options again. You've got website, you've got a text and chat line. Talk to us about how people can reach out and get the help they might need. Absolutely. So our website, probably the best way to get in touch with us, childrensgriefcenter.ca. You'll find there the information to call us for an intake. We'll we'll do support on the phone, on the video, on a secure video platform, and then the, you'll find on the website access to our chat, uh, which is uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays and Fridays, and our text line five eight seven three five five two two one zero. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Nadine. Thank you both. Have a good day. You too. That is Nadine Garipi-Fisk, director of the Children's Grief Center, and again online at childrensgriefcenter.ca. And you know, they are an amazing organization and one of the many organizations that we support through our Calgary Children's Foundation. So happy to be, uh, you know, on board with them. They do wonderful work and, and reach out if you're in any way, shape or form needing a helping hand right now. 709 on the morning news, and we are joined by Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini with the latest coronavirus update from south of the border. Good morning to you, Reggie. Good morning. Uh, Big, big plans by Donald Trump released yesterday. Guidelines for how states can allow schools and businesses to reopen. Guidelines are one thing and uh, dates are another. So if you can break it down for us, because we're still hearing this uh, tit for tat when it comes to the states versus the federal government. What's the plan? Yeah, so this is going to be a phased approach that the White House has kind of uh, issued these guidelines or recommendations for states to follow. And essentially, it says that if states want to fully reopen, they've got to make their way through the third phase of this guideline. Uh, And what it is to kind of get between each phase is you have to show that you've had a two-week downturn in cases, a two-week downturn in death, and you need to ensure that hospitals are operating at a pre-crisis capacity in case there's a surge going forward. Now, it's worth remembering these are guidelines and recommendations for the White House. There is no uh, kind of oversight that's going to be given to each state. They're going to be left to do this on their own. So there is widespread question and concern that some states may try to uh, potentially reopen far too quickly, far too soon, thus you know, putting a potential strain on hospital systems and possibly letting a surge start up again. Mm-hmm. I'm curious as to what the majority of Americans feel like. I mean, we're seeing some you know little protests here and there in different states saying you know we need to get back to work and open 
open things back up, but I would think the, the majority of people are not really excited about that, given the numbers that you still have of, of ill and dying in the U.S., yeah, we're seeing these little protests pop up. You know, some of them in Michigan where governors have been really steadfast and saying, look, we need to stay closed. There have been some protests popping up in states that have really been active and trying to go along with the president's guidelines and saying, look, we need to reopen to get the economy restarted. But it's worth noting the states that the president is talking about when he says he wants to see some states reopen possibly as early as today, they're sparsely populated. They don't contribute very much to the U.S. economy overall. It's a potential of something like 5% of the U.S. population. So it's unclear why it's a push to simply get these smaller states reopened, uh, but we're starting to see problems in these states. South Dakota is one of them. They chose not to put a stay-at-home order in place, and South Dakota now has one of the most rapidly growing and increasing rates of COVID cases uh, that's now impacting the food supply chain because there's a massive plant that has been hit. So uh, there are questions as to how this is actually going to work and what states are going to do. Reggie, we're hearing that there's still a lack of COVID-19 testing available in the U.S. How could that impact Trump's plan to reopen the economy? Could it have an impact? Yeah, look, governors have been asking and demanding that widespread testing take place. It's not happening. There's no plan for this to become a national strategy. And there are fears that if widespread testing does not occur, uh, this could pose problems down the line because, you know, states are going to say that they have uh, lower cases, but it's potentially because they're doing inadequate testing or testing is simply not available. We know that there is a shortage in testing abilities. There's a shortage in the supplies, the basic necessities to carry out these tests, and that's creating more confusion as to how this is all going to work out. Testing is going to be necessary for healthcare workers under these plans, but not broad-based testing for the entire American population. Reggie, let's get into the numbers a little bit because the daily deaths, new cases still super high in the U.S. Has the outbreak peaked yet, according to your health officials? Well, according to some epidemiologists and according to the models that we're about to get from the University of Washington, the U.S. potentially could have peaked, but there are questions as to whether or not these models are uh, are acting appropriately. Sometimes they're late to the game and sometimes they're just factually wrong. Uh, what we're seeing state by state is some are still working their way up the curve, but in places like New York, they may have reached their peak, but it's at a plateau right now. And what we're unclear of is how long it's going to take to get down the other side of the curve. It may not be a sharp fall. It may be a, a very gradual decrease, which is why you're still seeing New York posting death tolls over 600 per day. You're seeing uh, death, uh, you're seeing uh, confirmed cases rather in the thousands. Yesterday, there were more than 30,000 cases confirmed across the United States. And it's worth noting here, Florida is set to open up some of its beaches today to allow gathering and hiking and swimming, which could pose further problems. When you look at uh, Donald Trump politically and uh, look ahead to November, this is a, a, a very pivotal, uh, pivotal, uh, that's easy for me to say. Pivotal, time. <laughs> important. Yeah, for for Donald Trump, in the sense that if he if he's stern about reopening and things go awry and the cases just continue to climb, that's one thing. If uh, if he doesn't and the economy's in the tank, which he's hung a lot of his uh, you know uh, bravado on the economy, and uh, that doesn't get clicking, he's in big trouble. Yeah, look, this, there's definitely a, a political and an economic side for uh, the rush to reopen this economy for the president. Like you said, he's banked on a strong economy for three years. He doesn't have that now. What happens if the economy tanks again with a secondary outbreak is something that we would have to wait to see and how that impacts the president. But if he can say, look, I tried to get the economy reopened. I reopened some states. We had some money starting to roll into the economy, no matter how little it was. He can look at that and say that it's a win. And certain states that stay closed because the White House is impl- simply offered recommendations and not a rule, he can essentially absolve himself from problems down the line and say, this was governor's problem. Go after your governor during the election. I tried to get things done. 
We may even see a little impact here in Canada with, you know, Trump saying the other day, we hope to get that Canada-U.S. border open super quickly, too. And the prime minister yesterday saying, not so soon, not so soon. Well, exactly. I mean, look, Canada's population is significantly smaller than the United States. They have far fewer cases than the United States. But it would be problematic if you had a country that's vastly approaching, quickly approaching, rather, 700,000 confirmed cases and you open the border, thus allowing people to come back and forth. You greatly increase the risk that there could be future spread or widespread spread uh, across Canada. And it's something that Ottawa and Washington are very quickly going to have to have a conversation about. Mexico would have to be involved in that as well. But it's worth noting the travel restrictions from Europe are like going to uh, stay in place for weeks longer in the United States. And I can imagine that's going to be something that weighs on the minds of folks in uh, Ottawa when they start having conversations with the administration. Reggie, what has uh, your experience been as far as uh, social distancing? Are you seeing the American people that uh, uh, you're uh, watching on the street in Washington uh, respect the social distancing? Yeah, for the most part, there has been a uh, a, a response to uh, what the mayor had put in place, and it's been fairly positive. You see the odd pockets hanging around, uh, you know, that police will try to disperse. But in the district here, a lot of the parkland is actually considered federal property. So there's uh, kind of federal police forces that will sit on either sides of parks to ensure that people are just cutting through and not hanging out in them. It's kind of a different scenario in the U.S., uh, in Washington, where we have so many different levels of federal police kind of at every corner. Uh, but elsewhere across the country and through Maryland, in Virginia, which is uh, kind of bookending D.C., uh, we've seen kind of widespread acceptance of these rules, and it shows in some of these areas where numbers simply aren't as high as what the original models were showing. Well, we love getting the update from you. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a great weekend, Reggie, and stay safe. Thanks. You too. That's Reggie Cicchini, Global's Washington correspondent. Of on the morning news, and you know, uh, during emergencies like the COVID-19 pandemic, the WHO is meant to serve as a central coordinating body with countries sharing information to help scientists address outbreaks. But should we trust them? With all the facts on the World Health Organization, we're joined by foreign affairs reporter for the Washington Post, Ruby Mellon. Good morning, Ruby. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, let's uh, break it down first of all with the WHO, the World Health Organization. How did the organization uh, get its start? Well, um, it's a United Nations body and it was founded in 1948, around three years after the UN itself was founded. Um, And it was kind of founded, you know, on the heels of this optimism that came with the end of World War II um, to just promote health around the world and, you know, coordinate. And so at the time, it took on a swath of responsibilities, including managing the response to global health priorities such as tuberculosis and malaria, as well as, you know, helping with access to healthcare around the world. Um, And since then, I mean, as you touched on, it's kind of become a coordinating body for countries around the world. Um, And it's important to know that, you know, the WHO doesn't really have power in these countries beyond what the governments give it. So it's still kind of at the behest of, you know, these these sovereign nations. Who makes up the WHO and and should we trust them? Sure. Um, So it's, you know, it's made up of the 194 UN member states, and then they they select representatives to kind of represent them within the assembly. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's an issue. Of, the issue of trust is something that has been raised recently um, mm-hmm. in in line with how the WHO um and, you know, lent credence and praised China early on in its response to the coronavirus pandemic when experts were saying that the data coming out of China, you know, warranted some skepticism. Ultimately, I think, you know, 
they're uh, technically the organization has been widely praised for furthering what we know about the virus and you know creating and dispersing tests early on it's important to remember it's an organization of more than 7,000 employees and you know many of them are doctors scientists epidemiologists so it's definitely you know a professional organization um but politically it's also important to remember it's a, a group like many international organizations comprised of these member states and so that warrants some skepticism of you know who they are beholden to Skepticism, and of course, you mentioned the funding. Uh, you announced uh, this week that President Donald Trump was going to pull funding. How important is the funding to the WHO from a nation like the U.S.? I mean, the United States is uh, by far and large the biggest funder to the WHO, and you know, every every member of the WHO does pay a certain kind of membership dues based on their population and income, but. Um, the majority of the WHO's more than $4 billion budget is um, voluntary. And that, you know, is relying incredibly on what the United States gives it. It's, you know, the largest donor followed by not even a country, a foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So that's why, you know, during a global pandemic, experts are kind of saying, you know, this would be catastrophic, catastrophic if you pulled this funding. Conspiracy theorists all over the WHO these days as well. We all have like 15 seconds. Is there legitimacy to this organization? Um, absolutely. I mean, I think there are, you know, it's important to remember. It's, a, it's an organization of professionals, but also important to, you know, look into how, how they amplified the data from China, um, you know. But it's important to know, you know, these are doctors, these are scientists. It's just on the political side where it's important to kind of question where that information, where that praise is coming from. Thank you so much uh, for your time this morning, Ruby. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. That is Ruby Mellon, foreign affairs reporter for The Washington Post.